While Russia's war in Ukraine has captured much of the world's attention, there's another quieter crisis unfolding. As we speak, there's a buildup of terrible forces that would severely disrupt lives and livelihoods around the globe. And that is, of course, climate change. As world leaders grapple with an energy supply crunch, price spikes, humanitarian needs, and broader geopolitical concerns stemming from the conflict, they can't lose sight of the imperative to decarbonize. On this episode of Political Climate, we hear from several leading global experts on international climate policy who take stock of where we stand on climate action. I'm Julia Piper, host of the Political Climate Podcast, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. The Paris Agreement, signed by 193 parties in 2015, set the ambition of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. This week's release of the latest climate assessment from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change underlines once again the need for deep decarbonization as quickly as possible, if that target is going to be met. And we're almost too late. Greenhouse gas emissions must peak by 2025 and be halved this decade in order to still have a chance to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Renewable energy deployment, carbon market regulation, technological innovation, and expanded global financing are among the many steps necessary to strengthen climate action at the global level. Coal must be phased out, methane emissions must be reduced by a third, growing forests and preserving soils will be necessary, but tree planting alone cannot compensate for continued use of fossil fuels, according to the IPCC. Also, while the report finds that prices for solar, wind, as well as electric vehicle batteries have dropped significantly since 2010, investment in the shift to a low-carbon world is about six times lower than it needs to be. Suffice to say, our work is cut out for us. So the conversation you're about to hear features four prominent climate leaders, Laurence Tubiana, Rachel Kite, David Sandelow, and Adnan Amin, who reflect back on last fall's UN climate conference, COP26 in Glasgow, and take stock on the progress toward meeting the Paris goals. We also discuss how the pandemic has affected the pace of adaptation and mitigation efforts across the world, and what can be done to mobilize more climate finance. This conversation was originally recorded for the Zayed Sustainability Prize's Voices of Sustainability series, which is available on YouTube. It was also recorded before Russia launched its attack on Ukraine. But while the conflict has prompted governments to rethink their energy policies, the latest IPCC report makes clear that ramping up the use of fossil fuels would put that 1.5 degree target completely beyond reach. By way of introduction, here are the experts you'll hear from on this episode in the order that you'll hear from them. First, Madame Laurence Tubiana, who is the CEO of the European Climate Foundation and a professor at Sciences Po Paris. Laurence was France's climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21, and as such is a key architect of the landmark Paris Agreement. Rachel Kite is the 14th dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Prior to joining Fletcher, she served as special representative of the UN Secretary General and chief executive officer of Sustainable Energy for All. She previously was the World Bank Group Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change, leading to the run-up of the Paris Agreement. David Sandelow is the inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy and co-director of the Energy and Environment Concentration at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. He founded and directs the center's U.S.-China program and serves as a selection committee member for the Zayed Sustainability Prize. Finally, Adnan Amin, who served as the first Director General of the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, which has become the authoritative voice on renewable energy and a leading player in the global energy transition. Since 2019, Adnan has been a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center. He also serves on the jury of the Zayed Sustainability Prize. 
And in full transparency, I'm also on the selection committee for the Zayed Sustainability Prize, which recently started accepting applications for the 2023 prize cycle. So if you'd like to learn more about this funding opportunity for small to medium enterprises, nonprofit organizations, and high schools, all working towards sustainability solutions, then check out the link we've included in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, please take a moment to fill out the Political Climate Listener Survey. It's right there. And by filling out the short survey, you can be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. It really means a lot if you take the time to fill this out. It helps us understand our audience better, cover the right topics, grow and evolve. So thank you, thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to take that survey. Now let's get to the experts. I started this conversation by asking Laurence Tubiana, one of the main contributors to the Paris Agreement, about how she would assess the progress made on climate action from the Paris Agreement to today. Here is that conversation brought to Political Climate courtesy of the Zayed Sustainability Prize. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. So time to launch into the discussion. First, um, Madame Tubiana, I'd like to start with you. So from your position as France's climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21, you were one of the key contributors to the Paris Agreement, which really set the stage for a lot of climate action we're still talking about today. That deal truly changed the course of history. So a lot has happened since then. But if you could sort of look back at recent years, how would you assess the progress that has been made on climate today? And what do you think are the biggest you know, gaps and missing pieces or setbacks in, in the process so far? I think we have come quite a long way since Paris. That was the first, in a way, the start of a really a new regime, which was based on an element of every country committing to climate plans, what we call the national determined contribution, and some which were the bottom-up aspect, the unilateral aspect, if you will, of the regime. And then adding to that some elements of a, a top-down approach, which was in trying to have a framework where every country will come regularly to increase ambition with a set of rules of transparency on carbon markets, and at the same time, a goal in particular, about to be globally about net zero emission by 2050 or around that time and getting to net negative after that. So there was a, this mix of instrument 
in a way, uh, these five, six years now was, of course, key to know if it was working or not. And, and you know, we have had this uh, really very sad withdrawal of U.S. during these five years that has, of course, an impact on, on many aspects. So what we can witness is this framework is resilient. As you know, it's, it's a framework where everybody refers to. And not only the countries, the government uh, who sign up to that, who are the official signatories of the Paris Agreement, but many other institutions are referring to Paris as a goal, as a benchmark, as the framework they have to refer to and be aligned with. It's a case for, for example, a, a number of financial institutions, public and private, and more and more businesses and local authorities at the same time. So Paris is now the, the goal of Paris being consistent with that pathway that brings us to 2050 is a common point, a common endeavor. And so that's a very positive element. We have seen many countries signing up for net zero by 2050, many companies. We have sent some increased ambition in Glasgow. It was a moment where the countries has to, in a way, upgrade their contribution. So this is all good. And, and in a way, we have a resilient regime there, that's for sure. But now we run late. We are running late. We were already running late in Paris. And we had to accelerate during these last six years. And we haven't really. But the science is stark now, and we, we need much serious deep decarbonization now, process and plans. Uh, we need urgent support for finance adaptation and the loss and damage for the countries and the groups who are not. Anyway, we can't sustain the severity of the impacts. And all this, including the ambition that is not there, in particular on the short term to by 2030, we should be decreasing global emissions. That was the conclusion of Glasgow by 45% in 2030, and we are not taking that route for the moment. So it's, in a way, an anxiety, in a way, in the way we delay. And at the same time, we have the, all the instruments, at least on most sectors and more governments, to deliver. So no, no, now the problem is implementation. And I would add, to end with that, accountability is not enough to commit to numbers. It's really very substantial and important to commit to plans, to disclose this plan and to implement them. We need trust. We need confidence that the process is going on and acceleration of action. Okay, so evolving from frameworks now to implementation, accountability, trust, a key word, I think, there. Uh, so thank you very much for setting the scene. Dean Kite, I'd like to go to you next. You were an advisor to the UK government for the recent COP26 in Glasgow. The net zero, net zero commitments and decarbonization were really embedded as, as part of everyone's vocabulary over those few months. We saw a lot of commitments, a lot of promises. First of all, before I get into some specifics at COP26 on carbon markets, I want to ask what your top line takeaway was from COP26. Where did that put us in the in the dialogue today and, and action ultimately? Well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to be here with great minds and great friends. Well, I think one very important thing happened, which is that net zero was the currency of COP26. And there have been some uh, arguments about whether or not it's a useful framing and whether or not the idea of being net zero by mid-century is too far off. But actually, it's become a unifying concept and what we saw in Glasgow actually was most attention going on, and what are you going to do about it right now? So we may need to be at net zero by mid-century, but we have to, by the end of this decade, have made swinging cuts in emissions. 45% has got to happen. This, and, and you saw that, both in terms of governments coming with plans for 2030, 
pressure on governments to say what they're going to do by 2030. And you saw the private sector itself making net zero commitments also coming and saying, and by 2030, we will have reached this part of the journey. So I think that we saw you know, a worldwide embrace of net zero as a concept, commitments being made. And now those commitments are not enough. Some of those commitments are too fuzzy, too vague, not clear enough about what they really mean. And that's where the attacks of greenwashing come. But I think uh, we sort of saw a gathering around, again, a flag in the sand that had been planted, uh, first of all, in Paris. And you saw a sort of unity of purpose. Now, politics will get in the way. Is everybody good for the commitment that they made? That's the process of accountability and trust that Laurence talked about. But I thought that uh, Glasgow was really a story of every part of the economy, every government struggling with how they're actually going to implement the commitment to net zero rather than should we or should we not be at net zero. I remember hearing you speak at COP26 and you said something along the lines of this is sort of climbing up an ice wall and you put another kind of ice pick in there, you haul yourself up and it creates another little wedge and a little anchor, if you will, to build off of. It's not everything, but we're moving up the mountain, so to speak. And that image kind of stuck with me. Um, I want to ask specifically, um, Dean Kite, about carbon markets, since that was a really uh, another central idea of COP26. one of the achievements was a rule book was put together on international cooperation through carbon markets, uh, the Article 6 rules. So what do you think it will practically take to regulate carbon markets effectively? Did, did we get the framework we needed out of the uh, talks that, that week? It's a good news story with a lot of caveats, right? So I think the important thing is that we finally agreed the rule book, as you said, on Article 6, which is carbon markets and trade in carbon between, between governments. Uh, So now the UN has to establish supervision of how that's going to happen and all the detail has to be filled in. And that's going to operate on a timeline which is not going to persuade a lot of people that this is going to go very quickly. What we're seeing at the same time is an explosion of interest in voluntary use of carbon markets, which is not a new thing. There have been voluntary carbon markets for decades But this is being driven now by the pressing need of many countries to attract resources in to help them with their adaptation in particular. Um, So these are countries that have excess credit. So maybe Ghana or Colombia or Gabon, countries which are forested or countries which are stewarding their natural resources and wanting uh, financial flows into that. And it's also being driven by the fact that we have hundreds of trillions of dollars of private sector commitments of firms and financial institutions who say that they will achieve net zero. And in order for them to do so, they need to find some way, in some cases, to use voluntary carbon markets. And this is where the attack of greenwashing comes, that some companies are suggesting that they would offset their emissions rather than reduce them. So what we're seeing now, and this is a big news for 2022 and big news, I think, in the run up to the UAE's COP28 in 2023, is a lot of what I would call hybrid rulemaking between the private sector and government and civil society and indigenous peoples, et cetera, around how these voluntary markets will work. And what we're actually doing is building a purposeful market. We don't need a carbon market just to move a carbon credit around from one ledger to another. We need carbon markets to reduce emissions, speed the transition, 
direct finances into things that are necessary, for example, off-grid renewable energy for poor communities in developing countries. And we need this flow of finance to be steady and growing to actually fund adaptation in developing countries. So I think the concept of a market not just being a correction for market failure, but actually being purposeful is at the heart of what you will now see as we try to establish the guardrails and the rules for voluntary carbon markets. You could understand the voluntary carbon markets, hopefully, as a glide path to fully regulated markets and hopefully regulation around effective carbon pricing everywhere. Okay, bringing more of our great esteemed guests into the conversation here. Um, David, I'd like to go to you next. So what aspects of reaching net zero particularly do you think require multilateral action and how can international cooperation be strengthened and secure an inclusive response to climate change and the climate emergency, given we also need to account for the diversity of need around the world? Thank you, Julia, and congratulations to the Zayed Prize and for all the great people that you've empowered over so many years, and congratulations to this year's winners of the Zayed Prize. It's, it's really inspiring, all, all the amazing work that you're doing. You asked about multilateral action. I think almost all aspects of reaching net zero require multilateral action. Climate change is a global problem. It's a classic global problem. The heat-trapping gases that we are pouring into the atmosphere mix globally, and there's no solution without countries coming together and people from around the world coming together to solve the problem. Um, I think we need multilateral action to mobilize the best minds around the world, to spread awareness and much more. And the Paris Agreement that Ambassador Tubiano was so instrumental in shaping is a perfect example of this. The, the Paris Agreement finds a way to uh, encourage all countries to regularly increase their ambition, to ratchet up their ambition. And it provides a platform that almost requires capitals around the world to pay attention to this issue on a sustained basis. You know, one thing I found from working on climate change for many years is that one of the challenges of this issue is that it is a crisis caused by invisible and odorless gases. And although it, it shapes our lives, it's not hard for people in the ordinary course of their lives to not pay attention precisely because it is an invisible and odorless gas that causes the problem. And the Paris Agreement provides structure for making people pay attention. There are other multilateral structures. The Clean Energy Ministerial comes to mind. It's, it's a, a platform of energy ministers who come together from around the world to promote innovation on in clean energy and common projects on clean energy. And, and we need more innovative structures like that. You, you asked what we can do to improve multilateral structures. Um, I think three areas come to mind. First is sectoral cooperation, in particular in industrial sectors. And I think we've done a really good job at the Paris Agreement of finding ways that countries around the world need to pay attention. We've done a less good job of figuring out how companies need to come together, particularly companies in the same sector. There was some progress on this at Glasgow, but I think we need to do more in terms of sectoral cooperation. A second area is on financial cooperation. This has gotten a lot of attention. The developed world has not done enough to transfer resources to the developing world that are needed to address this. And in parts of the developing world, there hasn't been enough taking of responsibility in this regard. I think capital will only flow to places that have good governance structures where corruption is not an endemic problem. And I think um, in many parts of developing world, there needs to be significant improvement on that front in order for capital to flow at the levels that we need to address the climate change problem. And then a final issue that I think gets much too little attention, it's the food system. 
the food system is responsible for 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And I find it doesn't get nearly the attention that other sectors um, receive. And, and of course, climate change directly affects the food system in ways that are going to be you know, extremely dangerous in the years ahead. So I, I hope that this issue will get more attention um, in the coming COPs, COP27, COP28. And I particularly want to congratulate the uh, United Arab Emirates for its leadership in this area. It founded, um, along with the U.S. government this year, the Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate, AMC, it's been called, um, which I think is a really important part of the multilateral solutions problem and a good example of the type of steps that we need to take. Are you saying my little compost under my sink isn't enough? <laughs> we got to do more than that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great start and everybody can do their part, but absolutely, we need to do more. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tank PR.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Uh, Mr. Amin, I'd like to bring your voice in here now. So as Irina's first director general, you led the agency into expanding its reach to close to universal membership. And you did that by working with countries to accelerate the uptake of renewables, which of course are now a mainstay of many energy systems around the world. Today, we know that renewables offer a readily available practical action tool for reaching carbon neutrality. With technology costs significantly dropping in recent years, what are some of the key barriers that remain in completing the energy transition at the global level, and especially in developing countries? Well, thank you very much, Julian. Let me say what a great pleasure it is to be with this panel of old friends. And I very much enjoyed uh, the comments they made, which I think are spot on. Uh, I was thinking back on my tenure at ARENA, and the two big challenges, I think, were one, creating the knowledge framework around renewables, technology, policy, cost, et cetera. And the other was 
uh, helping countries create the frameworks for investment. And I think on both uh, of those, there was some substantial success and it's really taken off. And if you think back when I started, you know, we had a minuscule share of renewables in the global energy system. Uh, during my tenure, the cost of renewable energy fell exponentially. I think solar by over 90%, wind by, you know, 50, 60%. Uh, geothermal costs came down as risks came down uh, and so on. And we saw capacity additions, you know, in the last three years of my tenure from renewables to the global power system exceeded all others. So the speed of growth was extremely fast. We've reached, I think, around 27% now in the global system, but that's nowhere near enough for the decarbonization ambition that we have uh, coming out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, I, I agree with uh, Laurence. I, I still remember her on the stage and the euphoria that everybody had that night, Laurence. It was an extraordinary moment, but we've meandered a little bit since then. Uh, there have been ups and downs. I think both David and Rachel spoke about some of those. But as far as energy is concerned, I think it depends on how governments deal with the kind of challenges that we have today. And those challenges, I think uh, somebody mentioned one was capital. We're seeing the cost of capital for renewables coming down finally. We're seeing risk being priced for fossil assets in a different way. So exploration and production for fossils has gone down. Incentives for renewables are going up. Uh, I just saw the news today that uh, China installed a record amount of uh, uh, renewables capacity, especially wind power, uh, in their system just this year. Uh, they exceeded, I think, the second largest wind country is the UK, uh, which is about 10 gigawatts, and the, and the Chinese have exceeded that four times in one year. So while they are still adding coal capacity, they're also moving very fast on renewables. And in the longer term, we have to see what wins out and what the policy frameworks are going to be. And David knows this much better than I do. But you also see countries like India and Vietnam that have become uh, superstars on renewables. You're seeing emerging economies in Asia, which are moving very fast. There are bright spots in Africa, uh, in Latin America, but there still remains a lot to be done. And I think part of the issue is capital. I was a little bit disappointed, I must say, at Glasgow by one thing, which was that the whole focus became about the emerging economies that are still facing developing challenges, becoming the villains for decarbonization uh, for emissions. While we failed to really address the capital issue, the finance issue, we failed to address the adaptation issue, and we failed to address one issue, which I think is critical for trust, which Laurence mentioned, uh, which is how do we look at loss and damage? How do we look at equity and climate justice in the longer term? So I think these are big issues uh, in energy decisions in the future. And I think that countries that are in a position to provide that kind of support for the transition to weaker countries, to developing countries, really need to think about uh, what the options are and put in place the means to do that. I think Policy frameworks have improved exponentially, which is why we're seeing even in developing countries, renewables are really making strides. Uh, just want to remind uh, David that corruption is not just a developing country issue. Uh, it's almost a universal issue these days. But uh, what, what we face are decisions which are much more existential in developing countries than they are in developed countries. I'm on the African Climate Foundation Advisory Board, and we've been discussing the future of gas in Africa. We've had uh, big recent discoveries of gas, Mozambique, Tanzania, etc. We have huge oil and gas companies, Total and others, which are very active in supporting those countries to go in the direction of gas. 
Those countries also have huge renewable capacity. And the argument we are making is that the energy transition is going to make many of these fossil assets, stranded assets in the near term. So if we thought that developing countries had a debt crisis, when they have to deal with the debt for stranded assets, which are in the hundreds of billions, it's going to be a massive problem, both for development and for climate in the coming time. So those are the kind of issues that we need to look at. You said places around the world are contemplating whether their fossil fuel assets could be stranded. To what extent can renewables meet the needs then? Is there a magic number of 50, 80%? Can renewables truly do it all? Or are we going to have to find more tailored solutions and diverse solutions, especially as we get further up the percentage of decarbonization? I think we have to understand that there's no silver bullet. And we have to understand that fossil fuel as an energy source is not going to end tomorrow. Uh, what we're talking about is how, to, how do we get to the point of the evolution of the energy system that is decarbonized enough to keep us within safe limits? Because we're not going to, in the short term, at least in the next decade that Rachel mentioned as a critical time for climate decision making, to eliminate fossil fuels. It's not going to happen. The question is, how do we look at decarbonizing fossil fuels or, or reducing carbon intensity of fossils, uh, increasing efficiency in industry, housing, stock, et cetera, et cetera? But the other part of it is that renewables today in developing countries can meet much of the needs that we have for the electricity system. You know, I'm I'm from Kenya. Uh, We have close to 80% renewables in our system because we have geothermal, hydro, solar, and wind. Uh, We have a system that among the sub-Saharan African countries is probably much more reliable than others. Costs are also uh, much more manageable than others. And it demonstrates that countries that begin to utilize their resources can move in a decarbonized direction, but they need help with technology, innovation, they need help with capital, reducing costs, etc. So uh, I think that's a critical thing. And And the other issue is, you know, on this argument, renewables versus fossils, I saw a very interesting number where they said the total amount of acreage in the United States that you would need for solar to power the entire United States is 14 million acres. I don't know, David, if you're familiar with this, but we currently have 30 million acres under corn, which is for ethanol for mixing with fossil fuels. I mean, these are the kind of absurdities that we need to really deal with because these are suboptimal both economically and environmentally and socially, incidentally. So I I think these are the kind of questions which are in a way universal almost that we need to address. So you, you teed up the next question nicely there. Um, Dean, can I like to return to you and get your thoughts on this finance piece? So at COP26, high-income nations recommitted to hit a target of $100 billion of climate finance by 2023. That's after having missed their original target to hit that level in 2020. So despite the delay, climate finance is starting to flow. Uh, do you consider this target sufficient? Um, and where else do you think we need to go on climate finance commitments? And to what extent does private play a role, private sector, excuse me, versus the public dollars that we're talking about here? Uh, So the short answer is no, it's not sufficient. Uh, A more nuanced answer is that climate finance, you know, has its origins decades ago in a conversation where we had sort of climate action siloed separately from development, from economic growth and sort of the society in general. And so promises were made and promises have not been kept by developed countries to those who've done little to get us into this crisis in the first place and who are suffering the real effects of climate change now 
impacts uh, and who are struggling for their pathways to adaptation. And uh, as Lawrence has already mentioned, and, and Adnan as well, this concept of loss and damage as well, that we are actually going to have to pay for the impacts of climate change in places where the problems didn't originate. So the 100 billion is a totemic number. It has to be met. Uh, it's a promise. It's about the trust and the underpinning of sort of international cooperation on these issues. But the financial flows that are needed are much greater and are transfers of public funds, uh, the use of public funds domestically, and then uh, public transfers of in internationally of funds, and then private investment domestic and international. So it's all of the above. And what we're not doing is sending very strong, clear signals. Regulation is far behind. We don't have effective prices on carbon, which would allow markets to go faster. Uh, in many jurisdictions. And in many jurisdictions, we do have carbon pricing, but it's not effective and it doesn't cover enough parts of the economy. And as Ad Adnan has said, you know, one of the biggest weaknesses in the Glasgow construct, and I think now in the follow-up and the implementation, is that there's been lots of advocacy around what mustn't be done, what public money should not be used to finance. Uh, public money should not follow previous rounds of public money into, into coal, into now some countries are saying no international financing of fossil fuels at all. So we've been very good at sort of establishing what we shouldn't be doing because it will be a stranded asset and it's not a good investment. But the money hasn't been there in a similar um, fashion for what does need to be invested in. And we started to see platforms of public and private money coming together, for example, to help South Africa decarbonize more quickly than it would do uh, on its own. That's great. Uh, that commitment is there, but it's a politically fragile commitment and it has to be implemented. Now the Secretary General has asked for Indonesia and Vietnam to be able to be prioritised as countries that international cooperation should come around with public and private finance flowing to a rapid decarbonisation. And that is getting out of the contracts that you have for coal today, but it's fundamentally about investing in smart grids and the green power substitutions for fossil fuels. So there is a massive mobilization necessary to invest in the green power transition, um, electric mobility transition. Laurence is in the Financial Times today talking about the need to think differently about the deep sort of refurbishment of our built environment. And, uh, and that's both in developed and, and developing countries. So there's much that we need to invest in, and that's going to require large amounts of private money and public money, which means that the price signals and the constructs from the public sector are very important. We need to regulate this. Central banks need to say where risk is and what they would like to see. There needs to be public policy for procurement, for incentives into green investment, and it has to be root and branch. And that's what we're missing. And in the absence of that, developing countries will say, well, you know, you're not interested in helping us with our transition. We are, by the way, suffering from debt, made, made worse by the pandemic. And really, we have very much reasons to doubt that solidarity is really there. And I think that holds back the kinds of conversations that we can have. The good news, hopefully, is that uh, the private sector can see the direction of travel. But we could do much more if we were more consistent in our public policy. But it's macroeconomic and fiscal policy. It's not just the 100 billion. Well, returning to Mr. Sandalow as we start to wind down our conversation here, I do want to bring in innovation. We know we have a lot of the solutions we need today, but nonetheless, there are still many sectors where we don't or we need better ones. So in your 2020 book, Energizing America, a roadmap to launch a national energy innovation mission, you explore the role of clean energy technologies in unlocking decarbonization of the global economy. 
So what are some of the policy and investment considerations driving clean energy innovation that you think we, we need and really could yield some co-benefits, uh, socio and economic benefits that we also need to see along with climate action? Oh, it's such an important topic. Thank you for bringing into the dialogue. Um, let me make three points about innovation. First, innovation is essential to reach net zero. Adnan has already spoken about the remarkable progress that we've made in solar and wind power costs in the past decade. And it's really, I think, nothing short of a miracle to see the 90% drop in solar costs. That progress is essential, but it is not nearly enough for us to get to net zero. In order for the world to reach net zero emissions, we're going to need innovation of a similar scale in a range of areas. We've made great progress in energy storage, for example, but we need more, particularly long duration energy storage uh, in our power systems. We urgently need innovation in the hard to abate industrial sectors. The production of heat for industry produces about 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the bad news from a climate standpoint is that fossil fuels are just very good at producing high grade heat. They burn at high temperatures. You can stockpile them. There's a global infrastructure to develop them. We urgently need innovation across a range of areas in order to produce heat for the industrial sectors that keep much of modern society going. We need innovation in aviation sector, in the shipping sector, and in the food systems, as I've already discussed. Point one, innovation is essential. Point two, innovation is not necessarily clean. And this is a point that I think is sometimes missed in the dialogue. Um, for example, there has been remarkable innovation in the past several decades in our ability to extract hydrocarbons from the deep ocean. I mean, that required a lot of energy innovation, uh, but it doesn't do anything to help us solve the climate problem. Uh, in fact, it goes in the other direction in many cases. So innovative capacity is really important, but we need to keep an eye not on innovation, but on clean innovation, on innovation that helps us get to net zero emissions. And a third point is that therefore we need policy to guide innovation. We need policy signals of the type that have already been discussed. We need carbon prices, we need regulations, um, we need spending by governments on uh, supporting innovation. All of that will help us get to the innovation that we need. And one particular area that I think is exciting that Rachel and, uh, mentioned and, and others have discussed is, is in um, climate finance. I think there's really interesting innovation happening right now in the finance sector with respect to climate change. We're seeing climate disclosure regulations um, that are coming in around the world. We're seeing supervision of the banking system and stress tests in the banking world uh, that I think are, are innovative and really important. And I think that's a very important place for policy innovation to help make sure we get the innovation right. I do want to ask just for everyone's one word, no explanations, unfortunately, but if you had to define the future of sustainability, this is the Voices of Sustainability series. Mr. Amin, I would like to start with you again on that to summarize. I would say diversity. The system has to be diverse, what we do. Fantastic. Dean Kite, how, how would you, where would you leave us with? What word? Fairer. Fairer. Great. Uh, Mr. Sandalo. Youth. We, we need to bring in the next generation and the generation after to make sustainability happen. And Madame Tubiana, bringing us full circle here, what's the word you would leave us with? Inclusion and citizen participation and buy-in. Fantastic. Great. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. I know we could certainly go on. There's always much more to say and such uh, great experience and, and uh, you know, insights from this group here today. So I'm honored to have the chance to have moderated this conversation. 
Well, I hope that was an informative look back at where we've been and where we're going on international climate policy and how to keep these issues front and center as we continue on the journey to our deep decarbonization, which again, we know is critical at this moment in time as this 1.5 degree Celsius target gets further and further out of reach as the world also grapples with so many immediate conflicts and crises. So thank you for listening to this important conversation. Again, please remember to take that survey and tell us about who you are and what you like to listen to. It really helps us grow and improve. And remember, you can be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So check out that link in the bio. Finally, thank you to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and thank you to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano. You make this show possible. Thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back again soon.